Romans chapter 14. If you're all there, let's begin with verse 1, which says, Receive one who was weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful. Father, that we can claim you as our God and as our Lord because you are our creator. And Father, yet as an almighty God, you are also became our savior. Father, thank you for in your great love for us that you sent the Lord Jesus to rescue us from the clutches of hell, from the control of sin, and Father, and for the freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom to, to spend eternity with you, freedom to enjoy you, freedom to live life before you. And Father, we pray today as we study your word once again that you would be glorified as we sing our songs in worship that you would be honored and father that that worship and glory might extend beyond these doors as we seek to live in light of what you've taught us that we might honor you by honoring your word and father for you recognize that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and we need wisdom wisdom in everyday life a direction to navigate life here and father thank you that you provide that through your word and through your spirit and so, Father, we pray your spirit would be our teacher today. Help us to understand the things we would stu study today, that you might be glorified, and that we might grow to know you and love you and serve you more. And, Father, we thank you for those who are here today. We trust we'll have a, a profitable time worshiping and learning together. And, Father, for those who are away today, wherever they are, that you would watch over them. And, Father, for those who have trials and struggles and difficulties and challenges, Father, may we find our sufficiency in you, our answers in you, strength from you, direction from you, and we just commit one another to you once again this morning. And so we're thankful for the opportunity we have today to look into your word, the living word, the eternal word, open our eyes to it, now we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here in chapter 14 of Romans, we see the freedom we call Christian liberty described for us. And we have been studying freedom, Christian freedom, spiritual freedom the last few weeks. And we, find, we have found that our freedom comes at a great cost, does it not? The freedom we have from eternal hell costs Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ his life. And more than his life, he bare our sins on the cross. He more than died physically. He died spiritually in the sense of bearing our sins, paying our penalty on that cross. That freedom that we enjoy came at, the, at a great cost, yet it also had a great victory as he rose from the dead and secured for us the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. And we have seen that in Christ we have been freed from what, what claimed us, and that was death, eternal death. Separation from God for all, for all eternity is the condition into which we are born. But when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we, are, we experience a freedom. 
from that penalty of sin, from that sentence of sin, from that destination of sin, freedom from hell, eternal hell, and freedom to live forever with our God. We also found that at the cross, Christ broke the power of sin in our lives. We have freedom from that, that tendency to sin with, within us. We looked at that last time, the enslavement to sin, sometimes we call it, the tendency we have to always do the bad stuff, so to speak, always turn in the wrong direction. We have found freedom from that in Christ. And Christ broke that power and has provided for us the ability and resources to live for his glory. Well, here in Romans 14, we, dis we discover another aspect to our freedom in Christ. And that's the freedom to be me, so to speak, if I can use that term. It's the freedom to live our lives as we choose before God. And it's really defined for us here in this chapter, in verse 7, however, where it says, none of us lives to ourselves, and no, no one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. You see, freedom in Christ does not mean complete independence to do whatever we want, whenever we want it. Freedom in Christ means that we're free to live as God intended, and as God has directed, and as God has designed for his created beings. It's freedom from rule-keeping, so to speak, legalism, we call it. It is freedom from the domination of clergy and religious systems that want to order our lives. But it's also freedom from self, because self has a tendency to use our freedom selfishly. And we find all those freedoms in this, this teaching we call here Christian liberty, to live as we choose before God. It has to do, in reality, with those gray areas in life, doesn't it? Because God gives us certain directives. There's things thou shalt and thou shalt not. He gives us other guidelines in, in life. But this chapter begins by speaking of doubtful things in verse 1. It's doubtful things. What are doubtful things? Well, things that aren't addressed in the Bible. Decisions we make every day, the, how we live and how we choose to live. It has to do with our social life and how we run our families and what we do for a living and all those things that aren't directly directed in the Bible. And we are free to live as we choose before God. That's the whole point. We live as to the Lord. And our freedom is, a, is the freedom to be dependent on the Lord, to live as he directs, not merely following rules. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty which and with Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The yoke of bondage ref referred to people who thought they could simply please God by keeping rules, specifically the Ten Commandments, instead of understanding that Christianity is that relationship in which we are free to walk hand in hand with God as he directs in our lives. And the only one we answer is the Lord. That's what it says here. If we live, we live to the Lord. He's the one to whom we answer, and he's the important one, what he thinks about us, not what anybody else thinks. It's what he thinks about us. And that's why the first part of this chapter it reminds us that we have no right to judge another man's servant because we have a tendency to do that. Because if somebody lives different than me, we, get, we become insecure and think, oh, what are they, you know, they're, they're crazy. Sometimes that's how we describe it. When someone takes on something in their lives that you would never do, never attempt to do, never think of doing, you might think they're nuts. They're crazy. And we all live a different kind of crazy. I've mentioned this in the past. You know, I, I've used my son-in-law, who at least at one time liked to run 100-mile races. And I think, is he out of his mind? It's not a criticism. It's just, it's just a description of the fact that I would never live that way. And yet, you know, I tried to uh, renovate a junk pile and turn it into a house, and people probably thought, are you out of your mind? <laughs> and the answer is, yes, I am. And we all live a different kind of crazy. And the Bible here says, who are you to judge another man's servant? 
It's to his own master he stands or falls. You know, my way of living isn't how you ought to live and vice versa. That's the freedom we have in Christ. It's the beauty of variety and individualism, which we only can experience in reality in the freedom we find in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And thus, it's a wonderful life. It's wonderful to have variety and to have everybody think each other are crazy. That's okay. But the point is, we do live to the Lord. And in our liberty, God does give us guidelines in how we would live, whether it's in our families, our recreation, our social life, our personal health decisions, our financial choices, and on and on and on we go, because much of life is, includes making decisions that aren't necessarily directly addressed in the Bible. And we are free to make those choices to the Lord, because that's who we belong to, according to this, in this passage. But freedom ha does have its limits, by the way. We understand that. You know, in a, in a society, freedom has its limits. We're not free to murder or steal or kill or whatever, even though we might feel like it from time to time. Murder and killing, I guess I repeated myself, didn't I? <laughs> but you get the point. And our freedom, in physical freedom, you know, societal freedom also has moral concepts that kind of govern a peaceable society. You know, things not written in law books like consideration of others, a right to privacy, honesty, kindness, and all those things that aren't in law books, but they, but they contribute to a healthy, stable, peaceful, happy existence in life. There's limits to our freedom. And much of those limits has to do with how they affect others. Well, the Bible also gives us guidelines in regards to our freedom. There's limits, you could say. And I'm going to give you this morning seven principles that the Bible teaches us that helps us to govern at liberty so we can be smart about how God would have us to enjoy our freedom. So let's keep a marker here. We're going to be back and forth a little bit. But let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. For in 1 Corinthians, we also find another lengthy discussion in regards to our freedom in Christ. And we're going to look at, first of all, a couple of basic concepts that the Bible establishes before we consider these things. In 1 Corinthians 8, we find, it, we find really a first-hand illustration, don't we, about liberty. It has to do, in the, in the day and age in which they lived, with eating meat offered to idols. And it was a debate. Some did and some didn't. And in, the, in, the, in their culture, their, their idol temples offered their sacrifices, and oftentimes that meat from the idol temple would find its way into the local restaurants. And sometimes, in some cases, as I understand it, there were even diners, so to speak, attached to the idol temples in which they would, they would take that meat that was offered to idols and, and profit from it and sell it. And so the question was, should a Christian be eating of that meat? That's the question they asked. And this is what, this, and this is what the Bible has to say about that. Verse, chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods, notice small g, and many lords, those are idols, but Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through him whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol eat 
Now eat as a thing offered to idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we eat are we the worse. But, let, but beware, lest someone, somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak, and so on. And so the issue here is eating meat, how it offered to idols, and how it affects others. And if you flip over to chapter 10, which, the, when, which this discussion continues, picks up again. In verse 18, or excuse me, verse 23, I want to jump to verse 23, we'll come back to some of this, where, where the writer says, all things are lawful for me, but not, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And what, and what the Bible's recognizing here is nothing in, in, inanimate in life is evil in and of itself. Obviously, there are activities that violate God's righteousness and God's holiness, but when it comes to simple piece of meat, there's nothing evil in and of itself. That's why he's saying it's lawful. There's nothing, and, and, and uh, as a basis, basis of discussion, all things are lawful. If you go back to Romans 14, 14, where he says this in this discussion, I know and I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean to him, it is unclean. And so we find this idea that inanimate objects are not evil. And, and though some people may have convictions about certain things in life that are to be avoided, the Bible points out the fact there's nothing evil in and of itself. Instead, it's a question of conscience. In Romans 14, 14, it says, nothing's unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. And so what he refers to, the, the idea he's driving at here, it's what you think of that item or that activity that's important. It is your conscience that is the, in question here. If your convictions are that that activity is wrong, then to you it is wrong before the Lord. If your convictions are that it is right, then it is, it is right to you before the Lord. That's the idea here. And if you're, if you're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it kind of gets this, brings this discussion a little further if you flip back to 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 25 says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, ask no questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord in all its fullness. And so what he's telling us here is that, you know, nothing's evil in and of itself, and if you in innocence eat meat that happened to be offered to an idol, that's okay before God, because you ate it innocently. But if you become aware that it's offered to an idol, then he says, avoid it. Just keep away from it. Back in earlier in chapter 10, he says in verse 20, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice are sacrificed to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. And so Paul points out the fact there is an association, that if you're aware of something that has an evil association, then you are to avoid it. He says, verse 20, 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons, and so on. And so what it comes down to is a person's convictions, what he's convinced of before the Lord. And there is evil to be avoided. You know, God calls us out to be separate from both the, 
both the immoral world and the religious world. We're to be separate, we're to be distinct, and that is, and those are the guidelines that govern our conscience. And so what we find here in the, in the basis of discussion threaded throughout these chapters is the fact that, first of all, nothing is evil in and of itself, and secondly, the important thing is your conscience before God, your convictions, what you're convinced of before God as being right or wrong. And your convictions might not be someone else's. That's the point here. But we are free to make those personal choices prayer, prayerfully before God. Now I'm going to turn to the seven things, seven, there are seven dynamics, I believe, in these, in these chapters that govern our liberty, that put those limits, those guidelines on our freedom. And the first one we touched on back in chapter 8, it's what we call the stumbling block principle. The idea of being a stumbling block. Verse 9 of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians says this, But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. And he says, you might, in, in your conscience, be convinced there's nothing wrong with eating this meat, but someone else might. Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols, and because of your knowledge shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died. And what he's saying here is that if someone who maybe just got saved out of idol worship sees an elder from the church having a big juicy T-bone behind the idol's temple, and he's going to think there's going to be an association. And he says he's going to think, okay, maybe, maybe that humanistic philosophy or religious philosophy that I am okay, you're okay, as long as we're all religious, we're okay. And he becomes confused in the things of God. And he re maybe returns to the idol temple. It's that effect we can have on people in our lives. There, there might be activities that you and I can partake in in our lives that may cause another brother to stumble. That's a consideration. That's the idea that we have to consider others in our convictions. Verse 13 says, Therefore, if food make my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now that's quite the attitude. He said, there's any chance that I could stumble a fellow brother in Christ. Or maybe you could add to that, even prevent someone from coming to Christ, says, I'm not bringing meat again. Turn with me, if you're over to chapter 10. Where he kind of repeats this, where, he's, where, where he talks about the conscience sake. And then he turns to a principle. And this is principle number two. We read verses 27 through 29, where it says, Conscience, I say not your own, but that of the other. And then he asks a question For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? Why, do, why does any. Another believer has anything to do with my, with my convictions, my limiting my convictions. Why should I be judged by another's convictions? Verse, he goes on, verse 34, If I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I gave thanks? And he goes on, he skipped down to verse 32, he says, Give no offense either to the Jew or the Greeks or to the church of God, for just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they might be saved. You see, what he's saying here is that we're under a different law, and we're going to call this the principle of the law of love, the law of love principle. It's love for others that puts a limit on my liberty in life. If you flip to Romans 14 once again, we see this really expanded on here. 
Verse 14, Romans 14 says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. We read this. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, that means he's ill-affected. In reality, you're driving him away from a clear understanding of Christ. You are no longer walking in love. There's the principle. Do not destroy with your food or your convictions, we're going to say to bring it up to date, the one for whom Christ died. Don't let your good, your, your clear conscience, be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And there are those Christians who will assert their rights, thinking, I don't care what another person thinks, I have a right to do this before God. And the Bible says, no, you do not. Because there's a principle involved, a dynamic involved. It's called the law of love, a consideration of others. And that's why verse 19 says, Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify another. The believer in reality lives under a higher law. You know, you, in this discussion of Christian liberty, we often find people asserting the fact that, you know, well, what, what about grace? I'm under liberty. I can live as I please before God. Not realizing there's really a higher law that drives us as Christians. Because the law of liberty is often used selfishly. There's a higher law, it's a law of love, the love of the Lord Jesus, the love which loves people unconditionally and is willing to sacrifice for their sakes. It's that love of, law of consideration, the higher law that we live un under. And we are to live under that law and lift others up. Verse 18 going on says, For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men, and so on. Number two, the law of love principle. Number three, when we consider our convictions and the choices we make, we find also in this passage the edification principle. The word edify means to build up. And verse 19 asks that, asks that question. He says, therefore, let us seek things by which we may edify another. Does what I'm doing edify another? Well, why does that matter? Well, because we're under the law of love. Does what I do, is, is it helpful to others? Does it edify others? Does it encourage others? Does it lift them up? Does it point them to Christ? That's the question we ask. These are the guidelines God gives us here. In, in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, it said this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. They're not all helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And I think when we make some of these decisions, we have to ask ourselves, does this contribute to the, to the kingdom of God, to the cause of Christ? Does it edify? Is it helpful? Does it build people up? Does it build me up? That's a question we ask ourselves, because sometimes we forget why we're here. We're not here on vacation. To get all the gusts that we can get, well, the getting's good. We're here on a mission. We're here to represent Jesus Christ, to bring people to Jesus Christ, and we have to ask ourselves, does this contribute to this mission? of encouraging people towards Christ and encouraging people in Christ. The edification principle, number three. Number four, four I call it the indulgence principle. Let's go to Galatians chapter five. We're going to jump out of our couple passages. It's 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Chapter five, if you want to care to turn with me. And it says this, as there's lots to say about our liberty, more than we realize, isn't there? Verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Wonderful, we have freedom in Christ. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Again, another dynamic that flows from 
the law of love is that we don't use our liberty as an opportunity to the flesh, an excuse to get what we want. And I see this a lot. We all have that tendency. Well, I have the freedom in Christ to live how I want. And there's a certain thing in life that I've always kind of wanted to participate in. And now I've discovered grace and freedom, and I can do that thing. And we, and we, and we have to recognize how deceitful our own hearts are. I hope you realize that as you grow as a Christian, our hearts are self-deceptive. And we can convince ourselves that we just got to have it and that we can do that before God. 1 Peter 2.16 says something similar. It says, as free, which we are, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as a bondservant of God. And so we have the indulgence principle. Am I, am I really pursuing this simply because it's going to gratify me? And that happens a lot. This is something that my flesh longs for that I'm finding a way to justify. If you're in 1 Corinthians yet, or can turn back to let's go back to chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where these principles begin to be introduced. And the number five in these guidelines in governing our liberty is the addiction principle. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The addiction principle. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it says mastered. If you have an ESV, it says dominated. Vines says it will, nothing that will exercise power over me. And I think Holman says under the control of. I think you get the point. Addictions. I'm not going to be participate in anything that is going to master me, is gonna, that I'm going to become addicted to, that's going to control me. Why? Because we're to be under the control of the Spirit of God. And I've seen people dabble in things that, that, is, that can have an addictive nature to it, and they think, you know, well, I've got this under control, and pretty soon it's got them under control, because that's just how it works in life. But we, since we want to indulge ourselves, don't always want to admit that, and we end up getting into various addictions that master us. And, and, and I think if you catch the undertone of these passages, what the writer is saying, he says, I'm going to at all costs avoid any possibility of being mastered in my life by something that is addictive. I'm not going to bring it about under the power of any. It's a question we have to ask ourselves. It's a guideline that, he, that the Bible gives us in this context. Number six is back in Romans 14. I told you to put a marker there. Romans 14, and here we find the faith principle. Romans 14, the end of the chapter, where we come to a conclusion, verse 22, it says, do you have faith? That is faith in your conviction. Are you convinced? That's the conscience sake question. Are you convinced it's right by faith? Are you sure it's right before God? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. In other words, that's a pure conscience. If you're just not trying to bury your guilt, that you know you're violating your convictions or something God would, was, is convicting you of, if you can do it, then happy are you. Live it to the fullest. That's God's intention for us. See, these things aren't meant to be restricted. They're meant to be freeing. So that we can live life as, as we're intended to be. We can, free, we can be free to be me, so to speak, as God's designed and free to live as he desires because we don't realize when we get involved with sin, and with the desires of the flesh, they are destructive, and they drive people from Christ. Verse 23 says, but he who doubts 
is condemned if he eats because he did not eat from faith. For whatever is not of faith is from sin. And that faith here is in regards to your convictions. Are you absolutely convinced that what we are partaking in is right before God? The faith principle. And then we can rest in it. The, pr the point of the faith principle is not only to determine what is right, but then to rejoice in it and live it to its fullest. Verse 5, earlier in our scripture reading, we read this. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. That's a concept. Be fully convinced that what you're doing is right. It just makes sense, doesn't it? But it's a principle that ought to guide us in our decisions, in our freedom in Christ. Number seven, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, is the glorified God principle, that, uh, that overarching principle or undergirding principle, whichever you want to describe it, that governs all of our lives. Verse 31 says, Therefore, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glorif glory of God. Does it glorify God? You see how these dynamics, these principles, these seven here, direct ourselves to the glory of God and the benefit of others and direct us away from the selfish use of our liberty? And so really, freedom in Christ involves deliverance from self. And that's why at the very beginning of this discussion of 1 Corinthians 8, we really find, find the problem and the answer given where he says in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Love edifies. It's a love of Christ that undergirds each of these things that desire us to bring glory to God. And God is glorified when we willingly give up our rights for the cause of Christ, because that's what this is teaching. Yes, you have freedom. You have your rights. But you know what? Under the law of love, you ought to be willing to give them up for the glory of God and for the sake of others. Because see, that's what Jesus did. On the cross, wasn't it? According to Philippians chapter 2, he laid aside his rights. He became a man, and he died for man. And we're told there in verse 5 to have that mind that is in Christ Jesus. And so, freedom. Freedom to live as, as, we, as we want is in reality, live to the fullest when we live for God's glory. And there's no doubt today that the church has muddled its testimony in its separation to God because we're called to be separate from the world. And that's a balance that we seek to find while we are in the world because we're in the world. We're not isolated from the world. We're not insulated from the world. We are separate from the world. But we are to be distinct because we live according to a different master, our Lord. You see, the world is subject to the menu of this world, which Satan has written, some of it's moral, some of it's upright, some of it's immoral, some of it's wrong religion. But we answer to God. And in our drive to find our freedom in, in grace, we've often abused our liberty and have lost our separation. And so we need these dynamics. God reminds us, here's, a, here's these seven guidelines, and there may be others you will discover, that helps us to understand our separation to him while we enjoy the freedom to live as we want before God. All enjoyed in our relationship with him because he freed us from, from condemnation. He freed us from the power of sin. And he really freed us from self in our lives. And that's really living. You know, we've gone over this quite quickly this morning. But what we were describing here is life as God intended. Life that's going to be in heaven in glory. The freedom to live fully the expression of our lives in which, which God has created us and the life God has given us when we walk within the boundaries he has given us, and that's why we are freed 
to live as we choose before God for his glory. To love as God loves and to impact others for the cause of Christ. All because Jesus paid it all. It's all found in, in, in the accomplishment of Christ on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection and the involvement he has in our life as our Lord and as our God. And so we're going to turn to the Lord's table this morning and remember him. Remember the one that purchased that freedom for us. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful today for the freedom we have in Christ, Father. And, and you didn't free us to be independent from you. We free, you freed us to be able to be dependent on you. To live life as you have designed, Father, for you are the creator, you are Lord and master, you are the almighty God. Your burden is not, is, is not heavy, Father, for you have given us a life of glorious freedom that we can enjoy in Christ. A freedom that includes freedom from eternal hell, because Jesus paid it all on the cross and rose again. Freedom from those sinful tendencies and habits and enslaving power of sin in our lives and freedom father to live from free from self and to live freely before you father you are a god of life you are a god of freedom you are a god of abundance and we're thankful for that all because the lord jesus died for us so as we turn to the lord's table this morning as we remember him as you instruct us to may we rejoice today in that freedom we have in christ it was a terrible cost and price that was paid for jesus paid for our sins on the cross yet when we trust him as savior we are we are benefit beneficiaries of the blessings of life eternal and life abundant and so draw our hearts once again to him now as we remember him may he be honored in this remembrance feast now for it's in jesus name we pray